Well, Mary, hallow thanksmas, right? I know many of you are thinking, what in the world is he doing? It's not even Thanksgiving yet, but I promise you, uh, it's coming. Uh, we are six weeks away from our Christmas service here at Emmanuel, uh, five weeks away from our Christmas cantata. Uh, you have two more Fridays until it's Black Friday, so you need to practice your jiu-jitsu skills uh, so that you can get your 50-cent washcloths and towels at Walmart uh, for Black Friday. Uh, it is coming, right? It's All this is upon us, and so... As I begin to think about uh, what, what we're going to do after our prayer series and kind of pushing towards the end of the year, uh, really this idea of unwrapping Christmas just kind of, uh, kind of settled in as let's just go ahead and dive into a new, this is what I was wanting to do uh, this year, but I didn't think I was going to start it this early. But I believe as we begin to think about Christmas, as we begin to think about the things that happen uh, with Christmas, unwrapping Christmas is really the best part, right? There's this sense of excitement that comes with unwrapping Christmas. If you're a kid, maybe if you're just an adult and uh, you got a kid inside you, then uh, then you still have that excitement of unwrapping and 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 the the question of what it is. Some of you are um, a shakers when it comes to Christmas morning. My dad does this every year. Uh, every gift that's given to him, he'll shake it, he'll squish around on it, and he'll guess before he opens it. And at that point, about three gifts in, we're all kind of done with that game, and we're just wanting him to open the present. But he continues over and over. Oh, maybe it's, I think it's this. And he'll open up. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, some of you guys are, um, are baggers. And what I mean by a bagger, you're just like me. Uh, you have these big giant trash bags. And as soon as somebody unwraps something, you are trying to put all the trash in the trash bag to, to just like to keep the clutter down, to keep the mess. At my, uh, at my parents' house, uh, it's me and Jess and our two boys, my mom and dad, my sister and my brother-in-law and her six kids. And so there is a ton of us in there. And I just can't handle it. I cannot. It's like every time somebody takes a little piece of paper off, I'm like, put it in the bag, right? And so I just want it all contained. Uh, it's going to be even worse this year now that we're over at her mom and dad's house with the twins and uh, the girls are going to have just junk that they don't even, they're going to be more excited about the box than they are about the present. Uh, and so it's just, there's something inside me that has to have that like contained. Some of you are the keepers and like where you either want to keep the paper or the bow, or the box, and if that's you, we have counselors in the back that we'd love, to, like Jesus came to set us free, right, if those who are in the sun is free, is free indeed, right, let's just kind of get over that in our life. Some of you are the peekers, you like to find the presents before they're ever even wrapped. Here, listen, I'm going to let you guys in, because Theo's not here, uh, and he wouldn't understand even if it was, when we lived at uh, Pine Street over here, uh, in the hall closet of Pine Street, uh, there's two, uh, I think there's two, maybe there's just one hall closet. That was my closet. And uh, in, in the bottom of that closet, there's this weird door. I don't know if you've ever been in that house before. I don't know what it's there for, but there's like this cubby hole. It's, it's probably four feet deep and three feet wide. It's just this little, it's great hide and seek hole if you're looking for a hide and seek hole, but it's behind where you would hang clothes. And so we would put all of the boys' Christmas in that hole until we had time to wrap it. And any Christmas present we bought, we put it in the hole and just shut the door. There's like a little door. Shut the door and put my jeans that were hanging there, put my jeans in front of it. And, and so when we moved out of that house and we were getting stuff out and we were like, hey, boys, do you want to know a secret? And they were like, what? Because they looked every year. Every year they would dig through Jessica's closet. They'd dig through my closet. They had no idea that hole was there, that big little storage hole. I said, y'all want to know a secret? And they were like, yeah. I said, 
all those times we told you you're getting close or you're getting hot or you're getting cold with your Christmas presents. Yeah. You want to know where they were? Yeah. And so he took them and opened that door and they both just stood there like, we didn't even know I was there, right? Because if they did, they would have been in it. I remember the year I found, this is going to date me, I found my, uh, my Discman. Y'all remember when those things came out? They were the coolest thing in the world. You could take a CD wherever you wanted to go. And I found my Discman in my mom's closet, buried up underneath some stuff, and I was pumped. I knew I was going to get it. Some of y'all are peekers. Some of y'all just like the surprise of the moment. But there's just something, I believe, just kind of magical about unwrapping Christmas. There's this sense of wonder that comes along with uh, when somebody gives you something maybe that you didn't expect or maybe you don't know what it is. Some of you, there's a sense of excitement. Some of you, there's a sense of fear. Like, what is it? Uh, the second phase that comes through that is how much did this cost, right? And, and there's this kind of understanding of of not understanding and the excitement of knowing that there's something under there that you have no idea what it is. And so when we think about unwrapping Christmas, we, we want to kind of take a broad stroke because really when you think about Christmas itself, Christmas doesn't just happen, right? It doesn't, you just don't wake up on Christmas morning and go, hey, there's nothing here for us to unwrap and there's nothing here prepared for us. I didn't buy you anything this year. And so there's there's the preparation, there's the budgeting. Hopefully you should do that if you don't. Uh, there's the there's the uh, the shopping. That's everybody's favorite part. There's the shopping, there's the purchasing, there's the hiding, there's the wrapping, there's the there's the you know the exchange, there's all that kind of stuff. And then finally, there's the Unwrapping. So before we just jump right into Christmas this year, I want to take a broad stroke to our approach as well. Because Christmas didn't just happen the first time. There was a lot of things that built up that led up to it. So over the next few weeks, what we're going to do, uh, two weeks we're going to be in the necessity for Christmas, and then we're going to move into some of the things that happened before Christmas actually happened, and then finally we'll get to the event of the actual first Christmas. And so to do all that, we got to go back. To get to the necessity of Christmas, we have to go back, really back a long time ago, even a long time before Jesus. We're going to go back 400 years before the birth of Jesus to the last prophetic voice of God in the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bible, go to Malachi chapter 1. This is the last prophet. If you hit the New Testament, Matthew, just take a left. He's right there. He's the very last prophet of the Old Testament. And that'll set us up a little bit of why we had to have Christmas in the beginning. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 is on the screen. We're going to kind of work our way through this chapter today. I don't have points. I'm just going to read scripture and allow the scripture to be our points this morning. So uh, it's, it, if you have, if you take notes and just kind of follow along with us where we're at, Malachi one one says this: an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, what's interesting here is that word oracle. Your Bible may say something different; it may say prophecy, it may say message, it may say burden, because the real, the best word for that really is burden. A burden is what is on God's heart. And he's given, he's sharing this burden with Israel. It's not really like it's against Israel as much as it is to Israel. And so when we read this, I want us to kind of understand that he's not necessarily saying this against us, but he's saying this 
to us so that we can change, so that we can live a life that honors Him. And He states it from the very beginning. Here it is, verse 2. It's on the front of your bulletin. I have loved you, says the Lord. Isn't that great? Isn't that, for some of you, listen, that's, that's enough. And so everything that, that follows this statement is bread out of love. But some of us don't feel like that, right? Some of us in this moment or even kind of leading into this season, we feel a little lost and we feel a little forgotten. We feel like God may be a million miles away. We just did this whole prayer series and you go, listen, I've been praying prayers, but God's not answering those. I don't even feel like he even hears those. I come to church, but there's no fulfillment in that. And, and, and I try to do the right things, but all those right things are not even appreciated. There's just this seemingly demand for more, right, from us in our life. And, and I believe that a lot of us feel this way. But you feel the same way that the Israelites felt. Think about it. From the beginning, Abraham told them that they are this special chosen people, right? And, and they've known that they are these chosen people for a long time. And then God gave Moses a promise saying that, that if you will do all these things, this is in Exodus chapter 19, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is my favorite verse in the Old Testament. All because of that one word, treasured possession. I know that's two words in our language, but it's one word in the original language. In Hebrew, that word is segulah. I've said this in here a thousand times. It's a really, it's the most beautiful Hebrew word to me of all of them. You will be my segulah. And what that means, it's like a, it's like a vow. It's like a promise. It's this intimate relationship between us and God. And he says, listen, if you just do what I'm asking you to do, you will be my treasured possession forever. And, and they know all this, and they know that, that this is who they are created to be. But honestly, in this moment, Israel's not feeling it, right? They've, they've felt the the closeness and the victory of God. You know, we go you know, all the way back through history and we, we know that you know, we go through the Exodus and we go through the, the conquering of the kingdom, right? And we go through the Davidic kingship, right? We understand that Israel's had its high moments and, and God has obviously been with them. But recently, they felt more like God's against them than He is with them. After the Davidic kingdom and then comes the, there comes the invasions, and the eventual exile, where they have to be, they're all kicked out of Israel, essentially. And then, then they finally get to come back, right? But they come back wounded, and they come back tired, and they come back to a very hard life. The temple has been destroyed, and they rebuild the temple, but it's not as great as it was before. It's kind of small. It's kind of, we would consider it kind of janky compared to the nice one that was. It's it's not what it once was. And they have these memories. Some of the people have the memories of what it used to be. And they're living in a time of what it used to be when God was blessing. But now it doesn't feel like He is. And He feels like He's a thousand miles away. And then there's this matter of this Messiah that's been promised from Abraham. But He's nowhere to be found. Listen, the the... The Exodus, when God spoke this treasured possession comment, was, most people say, between 1500 B.C. and 1400 B.C. This is a thousand years before Malachi ever wrote down anything. 
And, and we, we see this and we go, that's a long time to be waiting for this Messiah that has not come. And God starts this whole thing, this whole burden that he's sharing through Malachi. And he says, I loved you. And they're going, we don't feel like you love us. And then this is what God does through the book of Malachi. This is great. He makes a statement. If you read through your scripture, there should be a lot of quotations in the book of Malachi. Because essentially all Malachi's doing is he's writing down what God's saying to him. And so he's quoting God. And then God... He'll make a statement, and then he'll give Israel's counter-argument to that. And then God will come right behind that and prove how his statement is right. It's kind of like how we do in our mind. We have these pretend conversations like, well, I'm going to go tell so-and-so. I'm going to let Nancy know this, and then she's going to say this, and then I'm going to tell her this is what it is. And this is exactly what God's doing through this oracle, okay? And so he's, he's saying, his, his, he's making a declarative statement, and then he gives the counter-argument of what we would say. And then he proves his declarative statement. So if you keep reading there in chapter 1, it says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And then God answers this, was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says. Yet I loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. God's giving us proof and giving proof to the Israelites. Listen, I chose you, I chose Israel. Now, we got to go back. we got to get a little bit of context here because remember, Israel is Jacob's name. Remember when Jacob, uh, he wrestled with the angel and the angel popped his hip out of socket. You remember that whole story? And, and in that moment, the angel of the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. That's why they're called the Israelites. Okay, that's, they, if they didn't do that, they would all be called the Jacobites or something. Okay, so they're called Israel. He's saying, I loved you. Did I not choose Jacob? Did I not choose your, fa- your forefather? Did I not choose him over his twin brother? I, I, listen, his twin brother, I've despised. I've changed. I've, the Edomites, they know that intimate, the, they're very intimate with the relationship with the Israelites and the Edomites. The Edomites are descendants of Esau. And they know that they've been at war and the Edomites had this really hard life. And, and, and God spoke that over Esau years and years and years ago. And God's saying here, listen, I chose you and I rejected the other twin over and over and over, church. God has proved the fact that he loves us, that, that, that we have mercy and that we have forgiveness, that we have restored relationships, that we have right things in our life, that we have continued blessings, even though we may take those blessings for granted, even though we don't, we may feel as though God doesn't care. The fact that we are here and the fact that we are alive is proof that God cares. Listen, if you're a believer, then the fact that you have and can claim salvation is proof that God loves you. You may not feel like it. You may be saying the same way, our counter argument that they had of how have you loved us? He's going, I've loved you over and over again. Just think about it. First Corinthians chapter one says this, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He, cha- he chose the lowly things, the, the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that 
that are so that no one can boast before him. He says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who's become for us the wisdom of God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have nothing to offer God, but he has given us everything. Because of him, we are holy and righteous and have redemption. He loves us even when we're unlovable. And what we're about to get to in Malachi is that he loves us so much, but he is still just. And he does not want placated religion. He does not want a going through the motion. He does not want ritualistic, mindless obedience. He wants real and honest, heartfelt devotion. So let's look what he says. He's, now, verse 6, he starts speaking directly to the priests, but, but we're going to assume that he's talking directly to us too because the Bible talks about how we are a kingdom of priests, right? And so we're going to take this as not just talking to just the priests, but to us as well. Verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Now again, he's setting up the argument here. Okay, And look what he says. If I'm due all this respect, then where is it? All you've done is shown contempt for my name. And he counter argues, well, how? And he says, well, because you've offered this defiled food. And he goes, okay, but, but how has this defiled food defiled you? And he says, because you've, you've let my table be contemptible. That table is the sacrifice, the altar of sacrifice. Now, here's what's great about this. That word contempt means worthless. He's looking at us and he's looking at the nation and he's saying, you've made my name worthless. You've made my altar worthless. He's going to explain this defiled food in just a second, but notice that the food they're offering is defiled. The deeper meaning to this is, is, he's basically saying, is the way that I see this food Israel is the way that I see you treating me. This this trash sacrifice is basically saying that that's all God's worth. Remember, this book is an oracle. It's this burden. You hear this burden? God's like, this is not right. He tells us and the priests, uh, well, the priests have the loud, and this really, I believe, hits pretty close to the vest on us. Let's look at verse 8. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? What's the rule here? Does anybody remember? The rule of sacrifice is found in Leviticus chapter 19, I think, 19 or 22. It says it has to be without defect or it, quote, will not be accepted. 
And so here what we're having is the, the priests are allowing the people in the nation of Israel to come and bring these diseased animals and these, these crippled animals and these defective animals. And they're calling it close enough. They're calling it, well, it's okay. It's still a sacrifice. We'll just, we'll just offer this one and it'll be fine. And God's going, is that not wrong? Don't you, don't you know? But here's the reality, church, and here's what I've come to understand. We do the exact same thing. We offer God our leftovers. We offer our if we have enoughs, right? And we play at obedience and we ask questions like, how far is too far when it gets to sin and obedience? And we want to get as close to sin as we can, but, but still not really upset God and not really do what He's asking us to do. We want to flirt with obedience, but still keep our options open of what we want to be obedient to and what we don't want to be obedient to. We sacrifice, quote-unquote, things in our lives that, that really are not real sacrifices. I'm going to let you in on a secret this morning that a sacrifice is supposed to hurt. I said this Wednesday night uh, to our Wednesday night uh, Bible study that, that your tithe, the sacrifice of your tithe is supposed to hurt. That when you love people, it's supposed to hurt. That when you serve people, it's supposed to hurt. Some of y'all are doing all the quote-unquote right things, but, you're, but it's not a real sacrifice because you're, you're doing it to the, to the certain type of people or the people that you're most comfortable with or you're, you're giving just a little bit or you're, you're not really sacrificing. You're sacrificing, quote-unquote, when it's easy and when it's convenient. And that's not real sacrifice. I've got on the screen, real sacrifice is not ritualistic. It's not easy. It's not convenient. It's not placated. It's not halfway. It's not mindless. It's not as close to sin as you can get real Sacrifice hurts. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Where in that is contemptible sacrifice? How can we stand before God Almighty and bring this worthless sacrifice when we have been chosen to be holy and blameless. God says, offer that to your governor. See if he'll be satisfied with that. And, and we say, offer that to your wives. Offer that to your, to your businesses, to your jobs. Offer that to your kids. Go halfway with your spouse and see if she'll be okay with that. Go, go halfway into your marriage see if your husband's going to be all right. Do, do half of your responsibilities at work. And see if your boss will be okay with that. Invest halfway into your kids and see if that's going to work out for you. Would anybody else, would any other area of your life be okay with a half sacrifice, with a halfway investment, without going all in in full obedience? Nobody else would be okay with that, but we continue to do it to God. And look what he says in verse 10. And this should scare us to death. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Church, 
God just said that if this is the way we're going to do religion, if this is the way that we're going to treat him, then let's just shut this whole thing down. Let's just all go back home. Let's just shut down the church, close the doors, and don't even bother. One commentary I read said this, it would be better to have no pretense of worship at all than to have it thus this is huge. We're, we're all doing this. We're, we're going through the motions. We're offering these half sacrifices. We're playing at worship. We're playing at relationship. We're playing at obedience. Then, then if that's all we're going to do, then we should just shut this whole thing down and we should all go home. God says, don't, don't even open the doors to the church. Don't even light the fire on the altar because it's not worth it. And isn't it true that God deserves better than that? We can look back on the Israelites and go, oh, how could you? Don't you know? You know better. You should do better. But when we turn that focus inward, it's a little harder pill to swallow. We know better. God deserves better. Listen, you, you deserve better. You can do better. Look what he says in verse 11. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. He's screaming out, I deserve better than this. My name deserves better than this. Don't you see, church? This is the whole reason why Christmas had to happen. The whole reason, because the condition of Israel's heart, really, the condition of our hearts, we've ritualized religion, that we've overlooked God and we claim to worship Him. And the reason that Jesus had to come, the reason for Christmas itself is that man needed to be reconciled to God. That we have this debt against us, this charge against us that we cannot pay that God, that we have treated God in ways that we have taken His name and we've drug it through the mud. We've made it contemptible. We've made His name worthless. The Bible says that my name has been blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then Jesus came. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because his name is going to be made great. Listen, his name was made great because Jesus came. Because Christmas Happened. And when John writes in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That Word was Jesus and Him being made flesh was Christmas. And the whole reason that we had to have Christmas is because the hearts of Israel and Malachi and the hearts of us right now that we've played at, that we've, we've played and danced around the idea of what obedience and really what it is. And, and the whole point is that God delivers this incredible burden, this warning through Malachi, and then He does not speak again for 
hundred years. This is the very last things that he says to his people. And he basically says, you guys are playing a game. And I'd rather you just shut the whole thing down than play a game. And then silence for 400 years. Church, I believe that we have to stop. We have to stop treating God like this. We have to stop treating our sacrifice like this. We have to stop treating His name as worthless because we could not handle the silence. Look at this. This is kind of my last thought, but it's a long one, so I'm close to being done. Verse 12. But you profane it, still talking about His name, by saying that the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. Can we, just, can we just stop right here for a second? What a burden to do the right thing. What a burden to offer real sacrifice. What a burden to fully obey God. Really? Because see, that's the thing. We would never say that out loud. Because we're good Christian people and we're here on Sunday morning. And... But see, the problem is that God knows our hearts. And when we offer these half sacrifices or when we offer this placated game of, of religious obedience that's really just more about the, the act of religious things than it is about the person whom we are worshiping, then in our hearts we're going, oh, it's just so, what a burden it is. I believe wholeheartedly that we make obedience a lot harder than it has to be. It's not hard to do the right thing. It's not hard to tell the truth. It's not hard to live in obedience. It's not hard to live in devotion to what God has given you if you just do it. It's not hard. We make it hard because we go, well, what about this person? Or how is this person going to react? Or what about how this is going to affect my job or my relationship? Or, or how is this going to affect my standing in my circle? In my friend group, what are they going to think of me? Are they going to point? Are they going to laugh? Are they going to, are they going to question my intention? See, we're making, it, we're making it a burden. And God's going, that's not what this is. And so you profaned it by saying it's a burden. You profaned my name. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. That's a, that's a, a very... Whatever. Just a very done away with emotion. When you bring crippled and diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? Says the Lord. Should I do this? Is that what would that say about me? When you bring that stuff, should I accept that? And then he says this. This is Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Cursed is the cheat who has what is required, but chooses not 
church, that's us. We have obedience. We have devotion. We have the ability to sacrifice and to make real the promises of God in our lives. And we choose not to give it. We have the perfect male, acceptable male in our flock, right? We have what is, God has said is required from us. We've got it. We just, we're just not going to give it. We're just not going to give that to Him. We're going to choose to give Him less than that. And He says, cursed is the cheat. That word cursed is used in a number of different times in the Old Testament. You know the very first time it's used? Genesis chapter 3. After the serpent comes and deceives Eve, and in turn Adam, and God calls them into holy question with that. Remember, he was walking through the garden and asks, where are they? Which is an interesting question because he knew exactly right where they were. And they kind of confess what happened. And then God addresses the serpent and says, Cursed are you above all animals and above all livestock. And then that same word is used against us who have what is required but choose not to give it. Do we really want to share company with that? So, what has He called you to this year? What has He called you to sacrifice or to, to really live in obedience toward? We call that, even in our own vocabulary, we call that a sacrifice, but it's really not. It's just living in obedience. It's just doing what God's asked us to do. What is it that, we're, that we have in our ability that we're not willing to choose to give? What is it that He's called us to that we're not willing to step out in obedience toward? What is it that He's asking you to do that you've just reserved and held back and said, absolutely not, I will not do that. Quit playing at church. Quit playing at obedience. Quit playing at this idea of salvation. And just do what He's asked us to do. Because church, if, if there's anything you don't hear, we can't handle the silence. And if all we're going to do is play at it, then let's just go home. Because it's not worth it. God says, I require more. And I deserve more. And my name will be great. I am a great king, He says. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're done. TJ's going to come and he's going to sing over us and this is going to be your opportunity to, to deal with God as we begin to unwrap this thought of the necessity of Christmas and why He had to come in the first place. Church, He had to come because of the condition of our hearts. He had to come because of the way that we've treated Him and the way that we've treated and played at religion. If, if nothing else, He came because we don't get it. And some of us in this room, I promise you, some of us in this room have been just checking off boxes when it comes to church things. You, you maybe haven't been here in a little bit, so now you're trying to get back in before Christmas so that you don't feel guilty about just coming on Christmas. Maybe, maybe you just haven't really connected with God in a long time and you feel like He's a thousand miles away and that He really is against you in that very first verse of I have loved you. 
just rings in your spirit this morning. Listen, if, if you don't understand how to live in obedience, if you don't understand the next steps to take, that's what we're here for. That's what the church is about. If you don't understand who Jesus is or why He would even want to come so that we could have Christmas, this is your opportunity to ask. Dustin and I will be down forward. Here's the point, church. A lot of us are just going through the motions. And God spoke directly against that today. And so a lot of us just need to stop, maybe right where you are, maybe at the altar, however you need to do that, and just ask for forgiveness. We need to repent. We need to stop treating God that way. We need to stop looking at His sacrifice for us as contemptible, as worthless, because it was not. Jesus was not worthless. It's time to lay some things at His altar and make them count. It's time to sacrifice and for it to hurt, to love people, to forgive people, to move forward in relationships. To be the first person to offer mercy and forgiveness, even when it's been done against you. Get rid of that frustration and anger, bitterness, and all that aside, and really sacrifice something that is worth something. Let's pray. Hey, this is Matt Overall, I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 1030. Our small group start at 930. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.